Yesterday, I was, I was uh, waking up, saw something on the news about tragedy in our country, got, saw something on Facebook about, thank you, Dave, about uh, some people that I know that just had suffered some loss in their family. And then I played with my little five-month-old baby Jack, who's like the cutest thing in the, on the planet. And then... Yesterday afternoon, I performed a wedding for some great people in our church community in the Huntington Harbor. And then yesterday evening, I went to Bellaterra and was a part, joined in this uh, concert for, I didn't join in, like I didn't perform, but I, I, I sat in attendance and appreciated the pawn shop kings as they did their thing up at Bellaterra with Hillary and baby Jack and then their families and then all these kids just running around in the courtyard. And I looked back over my day and I thought, so fascinating, isn't it? that you see the whole scope of humanity in like a 12-hour period, from tragedy around the world or, or in you know, the community to personal friends that have suffered great loss, to performing a wedding in the beginning, the new beginnings for this couple, and then seeing all these kids playing around while this great band plays their music. And I just thought, such is life. And that's one of the reasons why we gather here on Sundays is because we are doing life together and we are honest about the hard things in life because life isn't always easy and we don't pretend that it is and we're not, we're not blind to the realities of the hard things. But in the midst of the hard things, we come together and we celebrate that God is still good, that he is still faithful, that there is still good things happening, that he brings good from evil things somehow in his miraculous way. And so I'm so glad that you're here and that you join us on Sunday mornings as we keep reminding ourselves that in the midst of chaos, God is still good and can be trusted. I want to start this morning by reading you a story. This is a famous story. It's a South American story written by an Argentinian. And it's the story of Latif. It's probably pronounced Latif, but look at me. I'm just going to say Latif. <laughs> so settle in, relax. I just want to read you this story. Latif was the poorest beggar of the village. Every night he slept in the hall of a different house in the front of the town square. Every evening he would eat the alms or the crusts that some charitable person brought over to him. Latif was considered by all to be the wisest man in the town. Perhaps not so much because of his intelligence, but by what he had lived. One Sunday morning, the king appeared in the town square, surrounded by his guards and walking between the fruit and trinket tables, looking for nothing, but laughing with the merchants and the buyers. And the king and his entourage almost stumbled over Latif, who was sleeping in the shade of a tree. Someone told the king that he was in front of the poorest of his peasants, but also in front of the most respected man because of his wisdom. The king, entertained by that notion, approached the beggar and said to him, If you answer my question, Latif, I will give you this gold coin. Latif looked at it almost contemptuously and said to him, You can keep your coin. What would I do with it anyway? But what's your question? The king felt defied by the response, and instead of a simple question, he asked Latif a question that's been bothering him for days that he could not solve, a problem of goods and resources that analysts in his kingdom had not been able to solve. Latif's response was wise and creative, and the king was surprised. He left the coin at the beggar's feet and continued on his way to the market, pondering what had just taken place. 
The next day, he came back directly to where Latif was resting. Again, the king posed a question, and again, Latif answered it quickly and wisely. The king was surprised again by Latif's intelligence. In a humble act, he took off his sandals and sat in front of Latif. Latif, I need you, the king said. I'm overwhelmed by the decisions that I must make as king. I do not want to harm my people, neither do I want to be an evil king. I ask you to come to the palace and be my advisor. I promise you will never have any fears, you will be respected, and you will be able to leave whenever you want. Please come and join me. Whether it was out of compassion or for service or just for surprise and adventure, Latif, after thinking for a few moments, accepted the king's proposal. That same evening, Latif came into the palace where immediately a luxurious room was assigned to him. The room was close to the king's room and had a hot tub filled with warm water. During the following weeks, the consultations with the king became habitual. Every day in the morning and every evening, the king ordered his new advisor to consult him on the problems of the kingdom, on his own life, and on spiritual doubts. Latif always answered with clarity and precision and became the favorite speaker of the king. Three months after his arrival, there wasn't any decision made by the king without consulting his valued advisor first. Now, obviously, this unleashed jealousy with the other advisors. They saw in the beggar a threat against their own influence. One of the advisors asked for a private hearing with the king, and he said to him, King, your friend Latif is conspiring against you. I don't believe you, the king responded. You can confirm it with your own eyes. Every evening about 5 o'clock, Latif slinks away from the palace to the south wing and he enters a dark room. He meets with someone undercover and we don't know with whom. We've asked him where he's going all these evenings and he gives us evasive answers. His attitude alerted us to this conspiracy. The king felt betrayed and hurt and had to confirm the accusation for himself. That evening at 5 o'clock, He was waiting for Latif under the stairs. He saw Latif come to the door, look around. With the key hanging from his neck, he opened the wooden door and snuck secretly into the room. Do you see him, the advisors saw? Asked the king. You see him, right? Following his personal guard, the king struck the door. Who is it, Latif asked from inside. I'm the king, he said. Open the door. Latif opened the door. There was nobody inside except Latif. No other doors No other windows, no secret doors or furniture where somebody could hide. Inside the room, there was only a worn-out plate. In the corner, a walking stick. In the center of a room hung a shabby tunic hanging from a hook in the the ceiling. Are you conspiring against me, Latif? the king asked. How could I, your majesty? Latif answered. And why would I do that? Only six months ago when I first came here, the only thing I had was this tunic and this plate and this walking stick. Now I feel so comfortable in the clothes that I wear, and I feel so comfortable in the bed that I sleep in at night, and I'm so flattered to be, respect, to be respected the way you respect me, and so fascinated by the power that you give me that I come here every day to touch this old tunic to make sure that I remember who I am, and where I come from. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I must remember who we are and where we come from. To the degree that you remember who you are, who God has uniquely made you to be, 
who he says that you are, what he has for you to do, to the degree that you uniquely remember you, you will make an impact in this world, a unique impact in this world. To the degree you remember who you are is the, to, to the degree that you will be effective in what he has for you to do in a culture that continually pulls you to the normal, to the regular, to the common. Now we're going to look at the best example of this in scripture today. We're going to look at the book of Daniel. We're going to look at the story of Daniel and a few of his buddies. And as we look at this book of Daniel, I'm going to, we're going to bounce around to a few different passages that I want you to see from the life of Daniel. And as we do, I want you to have in your mind these words. These are the words that I believe Daniel was repeating in his own mind over and over again for years. There are these words at the top of your outline. This is not me. This is not my home. This is not my king. This is not me. This is not my home. And this is not my king. Daniel chapter 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So what we have here is last week we talked about the kings, right? And there was a succession of king after king after king after king. Because Israel demanded, they said, we want a king. We want, we want to be like the other cultures. We want to be like the other people around us that have these fancy kings with all the bling. And so we want to be like them, right? And so, and so God was like, all right, you're going to regret this, but we'll give you the, I'll give you the king. Here's the king. And so king after king after king was rebellious against God. And rebellion leads to Pain. Rebellion always leads to pain. And so king after king was raised up, brought down. Raised up, brought down. And here you have King Jehoiakim, one of the final kings over Israel and Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar is this king from Babylon that comes in and wipes him out. Besieges his kingdom. Verse 2, And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in, and they put it in the treasure house of his God. Verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king of his court officials, to bring to the king's service, into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and from nobility, special people, special guys. Verse 4, Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The, king, the, king, the chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. Uh, to, Mich- to Michelle, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So you have these guys. You have these guys. You have these heroes. These strong, good-looking, studly people in their kingdom. Minding their own business. Doing their thing. And because of the rebellion of these kings, God allows this outside king from Babylon to come in and overthrow the kingdom. And then this king is actually pretty smart. Instead of just wiping everybody out, he wants to build like an elite task force. So he takes the best and the brightest. He grabs them and he brings them to his own 
kingdom. And instead of just throwing them in like a dungeon until they submit and break their will, he brings them into his house. And he says, guys, eat from my table, right? I'm going to give you some good food to eat. I'm going to let you eat well, and you're going to drink, and you're going you're gonna to enjoy. We'll, we'll, we'll get tattoos together, right? We'll watch reality TV together. We'll, we'll do fun stuff. He makes them his friends. He takes them from their home and brings them into this new land. And here they are in a place that they have never been, with people that they've never been around, learning about new gods that they don't that they don't serve, that they don't know anything about. He takes them from what they know and brings them into this other place. Their life is in complete chaos. Everything has been pulled out of their control. Think of a time, if you remember one, when you had, when you had the norm stripped away from you, when you had the regular things of life pulled out from under you, when life was out of your control. Maybe your parents went through a divorce. Maybe you moved from one town to another. Maybe you were fired from your job. And you couldn't stay where you were living. When chaos is going on outside of us, it's critical that we have clarity inside of us. And so in the midst of this chaos, Daniel, who's being wined and dined at the king's table, makes some decisions. He makes some decisions to help him remember who he is in this new role, in this new world that he finds himself in. But first, I want to look at these names. I want to, I want to tell you the significance of what, of what the king is trying to do, bringing them in and around his table and giving them new names. Daniel's name literally meant, God is my judge, right? God is my judge. And the king changed his name to Belshazzar, which means Bel's prince. Daniel goes... The, the, the essence of his identity in his name, and the king, very smart, changes his name to Belshazzar. Hananiah, his name means Yahweh is gracious. The king changed his name to Shadrach, which means command of Aku, a god in this new kingdom. Mishael, his name means who is like God. The king changed it to Meshach, which means who is like Aku. Azariah, whose name means Yahweh has helped, had his name changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebu. All had their names changed to be names that honored the local gods. So this king, very crafty, whining and dining, hanging out, making friends, changes them at, tries to change them at their very core identity level by giving them new names, right? So in the midst of this, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this identity challenge, they are making serious decisions. And, da- and Daniel is needing to remind himself, this is not me. This is not me. This is not my home. This is not my king. Not too long ago, a friend of mine who will remain nameless because he is in this room we were, in the wa- we were in the ocean, south of the pier. Tip, don't go swimming or body surfing in the ocean south of the pier. There's a current, turns out, that comes kind of in this northeasterly direction. 
and it can, uh, it can pull you into those large pillars that hold up the pier. And so we're out there. We just played some volleyball. We were just out there minding our own business, just cooling off, having a good time. And we're just swimming, and everything's good. You don't realize until uh, a good time has passed that you are slowly being pulled toward this pier, right? You're talking. You're hanging out. You catch one wave. That's good. You swim back out. All of a sudden, you're 20 yards this way. And then all of a sudden, you're 20 more yards toward this pier, And then when it's almost too late, you look up and you think, dang, I'm close. (laughs) And there's a lot of barnacles and sharp things on those pillars. And then you realize, wait, there's a current. And it's it's pulling me into this pier. And then you try to swim against it and you realize it is futile. I cannot resist. This thing is pulling me. It's way stronger than me. And one of us was able to get quickly out of this current and realize, oh, I can just stand up. And then I look back and I see my friend who wasn't quite so lucky. He's within like eight feet of these pillars until he realizes that he can actually just stand up and kind of walk his way out of these waves. But the current is strong. And you don't even realize how strong this current is until maybe in some cases it's too late. There is a current that is pulling. There's a current in our culture that will pull at you. It will pull at you and it will take you places where you didn't intend to go. And if you are not intentional about remembering who you are, where you come from, and who you serve, you will get pulled into harm's way. The king's plan was not to throw them in the dungeon. It was to woo them, to give them a new name, to make them forget, to make them, to to swear their allegiance to him and to his Babylonian gods. He knew what he was doing. This culture that pulls us in that direction. So to fight, to fight that current, to fight that pull and that temptation, Daniel made a quiet commitment. He says to this chief official, who's in charge of kind of grooming these younger leaders. He says to them, hey, I really appreciate all this. It's, you know, it's great. I mean, I'm sure it was like flattering, right? I get to eat at the king's table. I get the choicest of meats. I get all I can drink. I mean, I get, this is, this is, a, this is a great thing. And I'm being educated, you know, I'm, I'm valued. Someone, you know, really pouring into me. I mean, think of like a recruiting trip if you played sports in college or, or you know, a signing bonus to go to a new company. They're flattering. I think of the firm and the devil's advocate, those movies where they're just like, yeah, yeah, come on, this is is going to be great. You're, you're going to love it. You'll have everything you need. And Daniel goes, yeah, yeah, hold up, hold up, hold up. Tell you what. How about if I don't eat what's on this table? It's just, it's just not, this is just not going to work out for me. And the official's like, no, 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 no. You have to, you have to. Look at what, A, why wouldn't you want to? This is amazing. Look at this spread. And Daniel's like, yeah, you, 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 you don't understand. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not interested in that. Because, well, no, 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 you're going to get me killed. You're going to get me in trouble because if you get all scrawny because you're not eating, then I'm going to get killed and you're going to get killed. And he goes, no, well, just how about this? Daniel said to the guard from the chief official that appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. Treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Verse 15, at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal foods. He says, I don't, we're not going to eat from this spread. Can you just give me some vegetables? And this is Daniel kind of bringing this on. So I imagine that perhaps uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are like, dude, <laughs> I like steak, you know? Why are you rolling us into this deal? Just because we came with you from this play. Daniel's the one driving this. Daniel with the deep convictions. And Daniel says, hey, hey, just test it for 10 days. I don't want you to die either, royal official prison guard guy. I, I want you to be okay too. Just for 10 days, give us nothing but vegetables and let's just see how this goes. Just, we'll just eat vegetables. And if we look weaker, paler, thinner, whatever than your other guys, then we'll eat your food. We'll be all in. But if we don't, then will you let us just kind of set us ourselves apart in this way? And after those 10 days, they looked stronger, healthier, and more ready for what they had to do. The interesting thing about the decision that Daniel made was that he made a quiet commitment. He could have rebelled. He could have said, hey, 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 you're not the boss of me. You know, I come from this place. And he could have made a big deal about it. Instead, he quietly went to the guy and he said, how about this? How about, how about if you let us just eat vegetables? How about if you let us just control our diet a little bit? Our diet, our food, because it's a daily reminder. It's in this rhythm in morning, noon, and night. It's a rhythm every single day that when we sit down and we eat vegetables, instead of all this spread that you have to offer us, that will remind us that this is not who we are that this is not where we're from, and this is not our king. Do you have regular reminders built into your life that inspire you to remember who you are, who your God is, who you serve? Philippians 3 says, when talking about people like these Babylonians, it says their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. What they think is their glory is actually their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel and his buddies knew that this wasn't their home. As lush and plush and nice, they got the fancy room, they got the food that they could eat. This was great. This is not my home. He's going to rename them Belshazzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to honor these Babylonian kings. This is not who I am. And this is not the God that I serve. Let me ask you a question. What distracts you in this culture, from remembering who you are, from remembering that your citizenship is in heaven, 
from remembering that you were designed. Even Maybe you're just hearing this for the first time. You're like, citizenship is in heaven. What is that? Maybe, maybe it's just this realization that God has created you, that you have an eternal spirit in you that will live forever beyond these 20, 40, 80, 100 years on this earth. That he has designed you to live forever with him in relationship with him. That your citizenship is in heaven. Yes, you are to, I'm not saying that you do not obey the guys with the badge and the flashing lights and just be like, dude, I don't, you know, my king is God. You know, you will get beat, right? That's not what I'm saying. But in, in your submission to the authorities that God puts in our culture, in our country, in our city, we still remember that ultimately we serve the king of the universe and that this is not our ultimate home and that these, this, the authority figures here are not the ultimate authority, that we serve a bigger God. So what distracts you from remembering that your citizenship is in heaven? What do you set your mind on to keep from just obsessing about earthly things? Years later, King Nebuchadnezzar dies, and his son takes over. His son's name is Belshazzar, very similar to what he renamed Daniel, but not the exact same. Belshazzar takes over the throne, and Belshazzar throws a party. This dude knew how to throw, throw parties, okay? So he, he invited a thousand nobles from his kingdom. So it's a thousand nobles, and I'm sure like their wives or buddies or people like that. So several thousand people are at this banquet. And it's, it's, it's a banquet to end all banquets. There is alcohol flowing. There is more food than you can eat. There is gold, silver, and bronze everywhere. There's music bumping. They are partying like it's 650 B.C. You know, I mean, they, they are going for it. You guys are really helping my self-esteem right here. This is a, this is a very responsive uh, part of the room. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, so they are partying in the BC, and they are, they are just living it up in this palace, you know, banquet hall, right? Thousands of people, he's throwing this party. And he thinks, okay, it's not good enough. We want, we want this to be a little bit more lavish. He's thinking, how can I honor myself even more in front of these nobles? And so he says, I know, I know. I think that there's some more gold goblets down in the cellar. I think that when my dad sacked Jerusalem, uh, I think he took a bunch of like fancy stuff from that kingdom in Judah. And I think he brought them here. So, hey, go down and get all their fancy stuff and bring it up here so that we can enjoy it for my party. And so, he, you know, his, his, his people that go and do what he wants them to do, go and bring up all these gold goblets. Now they're drinking out of these gold goblets from Judah. And they're just having a party. They're just doing their thing. And then all of a sudden, this large human-looking hand appears and starts writing on the wall. Fingers appear and start writing on the wall of this palace banquet hall. The king and his friends are minding their own business, doing the Bernie and whatever else they're doing. And this human hand all of a sudden just interrupts everything and the, and the you know, record comes to a screeching halt and everyone looks 
and there's, I don't know if he's using a pen, some kind of quill thing or what, or if it's just like laser finger, but there's writing happening on this wall, and it says that the king literally panicked to the degree that his knees were knocking. He, he literally was so afraid that his knees were knocking. I don't know if you have ever had an experience like that, when, when you have been so nervous that your knees have knocked, I haven't. And when you're the king, that's not a normal thing because you're like in charge of everything. But, but he was so afraid that he looks up and he sees this hand and he knows something is going down, something is happening, and his knees hit. And he says, hey, where, where are all my wise men? Because that's what you do when you're king, apparently. And you say, hey, all, all my smartest people, come here. What does that say? It's like four weird words, but I can tell that they're words and they're on the wall. What, is, what, is that, what does that say? And so he brings in all the smartest people and they can't tell him what it means. And so now he's really panicked. He's just pacing. Everyone else has left and gone home. They're like, oh, dude, you're screwed. I don't, that just feels <laughs> bad. And so then he, the queen comes to me and says, hey, hey, king, I have heard that in the time of your father, there was this guy named Daniel. And he had unusual wisdom. And God spoke, the, the God of his people would, would, it was said to have spoken to him, and he was really wise. Why don't you bring he, him in? And so the king's like, okay, okay, go, go get Daniel. And this isn't like a five-minute, he's not coming from Huntington Harbor. I, this is like an ordeal to get this guy and bring him here before the king to interpret what's on this wall. And so they have Daniel brought in. And this is like one of the most, one of the most powerful moments in the Old Testament. He says, the king says, hey, Daniel, I hear that you're wise and my father respected you. Tell you what, if you can, if you can translate that, if you can tell me what this strange hand, this fingers that just wrote on my palace wall out of nowhere, if you can tell me what's going on with that, I will make you the third highest ruler in the kingdom. It's like me, my queen, and then you, dude. You'll be the man. And not only that, I will clothe you in purple. You will look royal. You will look the part. The Bible says, I will give you a gold chain to put around your neck that would make Mr. T jealous, right? I will make you, I will make you someone special in this kingdom. Please help me. My knees are still trembling. I don't, something is going on here. And in Daniel, in one of the strongest moments that we have recorded in the, in, in the Old Testament, says to the king, Daniel chapter 5, verse 17, and then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what that means. Dang, the king, the king of the land, the king who in that moment with a snap of his fingers could end this dude's life. He could have his, his head cut right then and there. And Daniel is fearless. Daniel says, you can keep all your stuff, king, because for my whole life since you, since your father brought me here, I have been reminding myself who I am, where I'm from, and who I serve. And you cannot tempt me with all your stuff. You cannot tempt me with all your wealth. You cannot seduce me with all your things. Your dad tried for years, and I was nice. I was loyal. I succeeded in your kingdom, but I know who I serve. I will still answer this riddle for you. I will still tell you what it says, but I don't want your stuff. 
Because with maturity brings even more clarity and that boldness to know who I really am, who I really serve and where I'm from. And Daniel was crystal clear about that reality. Daniel goes off on the king. He says, look, Belshazzar, you have been honoring yourself from the time you became king, from the time your father died. You have done nothing but honor yourself. And your time is coming to an end. I'll tell you what this thing says. It says, mene, mene, tekel, parson, which they didn't know, but God just gave him the revelation. And it says, your kingdom has come to an end. It's going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians, and you're done. And Belshazzar, (laughs) give him a little bit of credit. He was like, okay, Um, someone get this guy some some purple robes and a gold chain, and he's now the third highest ranking official in the kingdom. Daniel's like, I told you, I don't, I don't, I don't want that stuff. And, and then that night, Belshazzar is killed and a new kingdom takes over. Daniel was so crystal clear. It didn't matter. He had spent the last years of his life in a regular daily rhythm, refusing to forget who he really was, where he came from, and the God that he serves. There's more in the back of your outline, but I want you, I encourage you to read it on your own this week. This is where I'm stopping. Daniel 3, Daniel 6, talk about the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. It's good stuff. Read it on your own. But here's where I want you to sit and stay for today. What habit, what practice are you building into your life? that you remember who you are, who God says that you are, that you are a child of the king, that your citizenship is in heaven. That you obey the laws of the land, but this is not the ultimate authority. What are you building into your regular rhythm and routine to remind you that you serve the God of the universe. The band's going to play just a little bit behind me, and I just want you to spend a few seconds thinking about that. What does it look like? Is it, does it have to do with your giving? Does it, does it have to do with not obsessing about money and just saying, hey, the, the, the first of everything that I get, I am giving back to you, God, to remind me that I do not live for success in this life. I am not dependent on the riches of American prosperity, I, I will give, and I will give routinely. Maybe it's, your, maybe it's how you spend your mornings. Do you wake up in the morning, and do you remind yourself that, God, thank you, that you created me, you died for me, you saved me, you give me purpose and meaning in this life. What is it? What are your reminders? Maybe it's, maybe it's the discipline of food because it's every day. It's multiple times a day. Maybe there's something that you go without to remind yourself that your, your appetite, your God is not going to be your appetite, right? I'm not going to obsess about these things. I'm going to get my mind off of just things of this world and remember that there's a bigger story here. Think of what that looks like. God, I just pray that as you speak to us that we would be courageous to respond that we will be people who build our conviction that you are our king, you are our God, we serve you. We will not be seduced by the current and the pull of this culture, 
of this world that we live in, but in humility, we'll practice quiet commitments that remind us of the things that really matter and that we serve you. In Jesus' name.